0: Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and as always, I'm joined by Adam from Adamian Golf. I feel like we should have some like beginning of episode banter that's better. We usually just go straight into our topic, right? <laughs> yeah, we're st- we're still working on jingles
1: and stuff, but yeah, I like to get into the information straight away, but yeah, we'll we'll work
0: on our intros. Well, 68, I think this is i don't know what this is like something like our sixty seventh, 68th episode and we still don't have the jingle so <laughs> i feel pretty confident it's never coming at this point
1: yeah might not be too important the podcast seems to be doing okay i think yeah i feel like, like if I, I mean
0: i think whatever it is we're just people habitually expect it so it's just me saying the damn intro over and over again or if it's a song so whatever that's what we got people i'm sorry so we're always trying to come up with ideas for episodes for everyone try and tackle multiple topics some of that's listener feedback you can always get in touch with us on twitter go on our websites we were we we're bouncing around idea of making a specific email for this as well are we going to do that at some point
1: yeah or should we do so that <laughs> we, we might be able to direct more people to our, our twitter accounts so what's your if people want to get in contact with you on twitter john what's
0: your handle you can always find me at at practical golf. Yeah. And I'm and Adam. at Adam young golf. So yeah, pretty, we get a lot pretty of simple. We, yeah. We get a lot of ideas there. So thank you for those. So one idea we both had was that we could take topics from both of our books, expand on them because as you know, you wrote the practice manual. How many years ago? Is it seven or eight years ago at this point? Can you even remember? Published?
1: I forget the year I published it. 2015, so seven years. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. So it it's it's been a while.
0: I get the sense that
1: selling like hotcakes, John. What's your book? Well, I've got it here. The Four
0: Foundations of Golf. How to build a game that lasts a lifetime. So we thought we'd take concepts from each of our books, but I'm looking at this chapter we're going to discuss from my book this time, and I wrote this. I don't know months ago, less than a year ago, and I've already probably got some new ideas, So, and I'm sure you're going to have a different perspective on what I wrote, so we're going to do my a topic from my book first, and then we'll, we'll pick one from the practice manual as well, and for those of you who have read it, perhaps we'll add a little bit more color to it, different perspectives, maybe from myself or Adam, and if you haven't read The Four Foundations of Golf, which is currently available on Amazon, I guess you'll get a little taste of one of the topics in the book so what is the topic john so the topic is something that i'm i'm really passionate about this topic like in general in life because i think it's something that humans struggle with on a spectrum we're going to be talking about the concept of what can you control or not control in golf and i put this in the, the last section of the book which is my my quote unquote mental section, because I think that golf attracts a lot of people who love to be in control in other parts of their life. I've I've seen a lot of people who play golf who are you know excellent at business or, or many other parts of life, and they get to golf. And it's one of the reasons they get hooked is because they quickly find out, well, I'm not in control of a lot of things. So they want to be in control. And they think, oh, if I keep practicing and playing, I'm I'm finally going to master this game and be in control of everything. And unfortunately, the flip side of that is because there is so much in this game that we can't control. I believe it's one of the reasons that I was an unhappy golfer for a long time. And I see a lot of other golfers who are not so happy in their games is because they just haven't wrapped their head around what they can control and what they can't not that i'm the absolute authority on all of this but i've got some ideas from my experience and watching other golfers and i think you have too with all of your experience in the game Uh, so that's what we're talking about today do you have any opening or generic thoughts on the the notion of control in golf
1: Yeah, I mean, golf is the ultimate in acceptance, right? Because like you said, there's so many factors that are out of our control. And there'll even be things that we talk about in this that people believe are in their control. And I'm going to throw a few things in to to cast doubt on that. But I mean, we can build more control in certain areas through training. But ultimately, we're at the mercy of our bodies. We're at the mercy of the environment. You know, what the wind does, certain elements that are luck as well is... There's so many things, so many factors that uh, create the game and make our scores so wild and varied, right? Like we say, when we look at the top professionals, we we take their best score in the year, and we take their worst score in the year, and even the best professionals in the world can be 15 shots different. So it's no different for amateurs, really. So there's always going to be that inbuilt inconsistency in our scores because of those variables that are at play.
0: Yeah, so like every episode we do, I think we're going to fire off on a bunch of ideas and i think a lot of the stuff we're going to say you'll probably be nodding your head and be like yeah yeah i knew that and then there's probably going to be a couple of things you hear where like oh that's probably going to make you feel better about your game just because i <laughs> i know one of the reasons i wrote this chapter is because i was one of those people who thought i was in control of all these things and it turns out i wasn't and i found that the harder i squeezed on the things that I thought I could control, the worse I would play and the more unhappy I would be. So eventually I just had to kind of let go or as much as I could, I'll I'll admit to being, you know, in my life outside of golf, there's a lot of things that I love having control over or want to have control over. So this is certainly something I think of a a lot about outside of golf as well. It's, it's, I don't want to get into personal Help or life advice here, but there are a lot of parallels for sure between this and your life outside of golf. I mean, of course, this has shown up in religious texts for hundreds, of thousands of years. You know, accept what you can, and and just or accept what you can't control, and and try and control the things you can. It's an incredibly powerful concept.
1: What do you want to start with, John? Do you want to start with the things that
0: we can control or things we can't control that people try to? Yeah, I think let's start with, I guess we could follow the the bones of my chapter here. I didn't put everything I could think of. This is actually one of the shortest chapters in the book, but we could start with what I believe we can control and some of your thoughts on them as well. For simplicity's sake, I think of, I call them the big three of what you can control. and We could start here as our, our bullet points. I think the main categories that golfers can exert some control over or should try the control are your preparation, your routine, and your reactions. That's a mixture of on and off course elements for sure. So why don't we start with preparation, all the stuff that happens before we even step on the course. You know, what can we control? I mean, there's, there's certainly a laundry list of things that we talk about on this show, but if you do want to become a better golfer, You have to take ownership of these things and you can control your, you know, the time you spend, how you spend that time. We always talk about working smarter, not necessarily harder, but there's many ideas. I think that fall into the preparation category that are helpful to golfers. What's the one that I think I know (laughs) your number one preparation, what's the most important one for you off the course?
1: Off the course before the round. Um I well, I always want to make sure I've got enough warm-up time. That's a huge. Oh, one I'm for talking like playing. even
0: you wrote a book about it, Adam. <laughs> I'm leading into your book. Practice is <laughs> preparation, right? Come on, oh, you're going that far back? I think yeah, I'm, I'm going anything, anything round. off the course. Yeah, I don't mean just getting yourself ready to get on the course. I mean like literally anything you do off the golf course to make your on-course performance better. And to me, have yeah, practice. Is- is the one that, you know, we talk about a lot. You you certainly have specialized in that. That's my first bullet point in the book. But yeah, that's I believe one of the big things you can control is practicing, how you practice. I just totally dominated what you wanted to say there. <laughs> but I wanted to lead you to your topic.
1: No, it's good. I mean yeah, if you go all the way back to, you know, winter Preparation, you know, you're preparing for the season, the upcoming season. So you're going to be doing, you know, swing maintenance. Well, not even maintenance, you might be making overhauls during that point, trying to get your swing into new new grounds making new things happen uh, you might even be doing some exploratory work we talk a lot about the differential variability practice you know hitting toe heel left right intentionally just to explore and open up new fields new awareness things that you might not want to do pre-tournament in the season but stuff that's really good in off season then as you get closer to in season you want to start stabilizing things a little bit so doing N1 tests, you know, testing different swing focuses perhaps and seeing which ones are performing better then simulating the game itself. So you're preparing for actually playing by doing things like full routines in your practice, changing clubs in your practice, changing targets while you practice. So it's really simulating or adding as many elements or as much context to the real game itself. And uh, yeah, that's how you kind of prepare your season, really. And anything to add to that, John?
0: Obviously, we talk a lot about practice on the show. You wrote a great book about the practice called The Practice Manual. You have all your programs. I sort—I have a whole t- section in my book about practice. You and I are in agreement on a lot of the ways to practice, obviously. But yeah, that is, to me, that is one of the top things you can control in golf is how much time you're going to devote to practicing. And then probably more importantly is how you spend that time, which is, again, you can go through our library, your books, your plans to get ideas for that. But I view that as maybe numero uno in terms of how you can prepare because golf is a test of skill. And if you do not work on those skills off the course, then it's going to be a lot harder to play better. It's just that simple. So, yeah, I I would, you know, if you're looking to take more ownership of your game, you have to take more ownership and control of the way you practice, the way you prepare for the test of golf. So that that's definitely number one uh, for preparation. We don't we don't have to go so deep into that because we talk about it all the time. But, yeah, that's a big control one for me.
1: Yeah, there's lots of things, even in your improvements, when we're practicing, we're doing it to speed up our improvement, or at the very least, to kind of maintain the level that we have. And there are lots of things that are not in our control there. You can't, in terms of your improvement, you can't decide that you're going to be a tall pro. I mean, some people will put in all the work that a tall pro could do, and they might not achieve the same level. However, the things that you can control is what you practice, the quality of your practice. So, you know, your potential, if you see it as a a bar or a ceiling, you can get closer to that and you can get there more quickly if you're doing the right things. Whereas if you just go into a practice session without a plan, if you're just winging it, basically, you're just going there, I'm just going to beat balls and see what happens. Yeah, you might improve. You could also ingrain a lot of faults. But you're certainly not going to improve as fast as if you have an actual plan of action and you're doing things like monitoring it. So all the stuff that's in our control there.
0: Absolutely. And I will also throw, you know, swing instruction. If you're going to get lessons to get customized advice on your swing, you and I are always proponents of that, that can help your practice. So that's another thing that could absolutely is within your control, getting help as well. So yeah, practice. That's my number one you know, thing off the course you can do to prepare and can control at least what you put into it. Sometimes we can't control What comes out of it, but we'll we'll tackle that concept a little bit later. Another one that I have for preparation off the course is a combination of studying a golf course before you play it and developing an overall strategic plan. So we've had some topics or episodes on strategy in the past on the show, just a reminder to everyone listening, this is an evergreen show. There's no order. You can go back into our library that we keep building and you'll find some episodes where we talk about, you know, we had Scott Fawcett on to talk about how to choose T-shot targets more effectively. You and I did an episode on approach shot targets. So I believe good course managers or good strategists have a lot of decisions before they even, they have a lot of decisions made before they even step on the course. You can absolutely go on satellite imagery now and for a long time and take a look at where the big trouble is using some basic frameworks on how to choose the right targets and clubs off the tee to avoid trouble and make sure you're advancing the ball as far as possible. I give more of a basic, plan in my book certainly decade from faucet is a much more advanced system that i I always recommend to people i know you have some stuff in your accuracy plan but yeah this is something that's really in our control you can step onto the course with a lot of decisions made saying i know when i go to the third t i'm taking a driver out of my bag and i'm aiming right over there left of that bunker or i know that when i step up to my approach shots i have a basic framework in mind that allows me to quickly make a decision rather than haphazardly making decisions every time I step up to the ball. So if you can learn proper strategy, prepare before you step onto a course, I believe you'll be in a much better place to score lower because You're going to make smarter decisions that are more optimized if you know the rules. And secondly, you'll be more committed to each shot because I can't tell you how important it is to step onto the course when you have the decisions made and the framework in front of you, it just frees you up. It allows you to get over the ball with less distraction and more commitment. So absolutely, I believe whether it's studying a golf course you haven't played before or at least analyzing one that you know a decent amount and getting smarter with your decisions and having some type of overall strategic plan that's total control over that. You can control that off the course and then when you get on the course as well. Yeah, I always make
1: a make an effort to before I play around a round of golf even if I know the course I'll go through it on the the Grint. That's the app that I use. Yeah, that's a great and, app. Uh, yeah, and yeah, it's good cuz you can just select different tees and then you can kind of plan out, okay, it's it's 250, 260, 280 to this bunker. Um, Sometimes I use it to select appropriate tees for myself because as as a non-long hitter, (laughs) sometimes if I play courses off the back, it's I wouldn't say it's easier, but it takes a lot of the trouble out of play for me. And so sometimes I'll actually move up a tee so it brings more trouble into play for me, so it's a more realistic test of my skills sometimes. Uh, So yeah, I use it to select appropriate tees, but just to, you know, sometimes the fairway will run out at 250 on a given hole, and it's nice to have gone through that in your head before to know that, oh, I'm gonna be hitting a three wood off this tee instead of a driver. Um, so yeah, or maybe water cuts in or something like that. So yeah, it's, I love to play a Mendel around a golf before I get on that actual course.
0: Yeah. And there's some other, I've used 18 birdies is another good app. I actually use Google earth. You can see 3d. So if I'm preparing for a tournament on a golf course, I've never played before. I want to dive a little bit deeper. Like I played a course recently in a tournament that had a bunch of elevation changes and i could see that with the 3d satellite imagery that's that's very easy to to locate on google earth and i think google maps has it as well you could really go through a whole round of golf if you want to it's it's interesting but you could see that let's say that the fairway did run out at 250 was it downhill maybe i need to play less club because it's going to be a big elevation drop so you can Kind of take away some of the shock of some of these courses if you are in an area with, with a lot of different elevation changes. I'll give a nod to the Decade app. He has a very cool feature in that that allows you to... Put different dispersions for clubs off the tee, and then it will show you the lines automatically and go through each hole. So you can say, all right, if my dispersion 70 yards with a driver, I go to hole two, three, and you can see where your aim point is, or if it makes sense to maybe take something less than driver. And of course, in the strategic part of my book, I give some advice there. So you can check that out. But yeah, no, I, I think it's a great idea to... Study a course, either basic work on an app or if you'd like to go a little bit deeper, you can do the satellite imagery stuff with Google Earth, but certainly a lot of control there. If you want if you want to go really deep, and I know this is not gonna be available to
1: everybody, but something we've done, John, is get on the simulator. Oh yeah. <laughs> and actually select the course. So yeah, there's ways of, if we're going to play Pebble Beach, we can get on the simulator and select that course and go and play it a few times before. I certainly did that before I played Edgewood Tahoe. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the sim golf was so accurate, so close to what what was actually facing me when I got there. So it was, it was uh, a great preparation, but uh, I know that's not, available to everybody but certainly playing mental rounds of golf from your app from the grint or what was it you mentioned 18 birdies and 18 birdies is a really good
0: app yep yeah and shout out to all the people who you and i use tgc19 the golf club for our simulation software and there's this huge community of golfers who design the courses and they use real gps and satellite data points to make sure that the courses are as realistic as possible. So <laughs> if any of those people are listening to the show, thanks for all the hard work you do, because you really get to see a sense of how the course really plays. So yeah, definitely that's number two on mine is, is studying a golf course and developing a strategic plan. Totally huge amounts of control there in preparation. Number three for me, you alluded to this earlier is getting your body ready, whether that's A pre-round warm-up, which we did do an episode with Mike Carroll about that. You can go back to that. Or a whole other category of that is just exercise in general. We now know with the help of organizations like Tylus Performance Institute, guys like Mike Carroll who've learned from them and, and, and learned a lot of other disciplines from other sports, we have a lot of really good information on how to get your body in its best state to play golf, whether that's mobility work, something I've been doing the last year that's been very helpful for me on and off the course. Strength training, I know you're a proponent of that, Adam, and and so am I. We've had people on the show like Dr. Tyler Standiford from Superspeed Golf with overspeed training, so there are ways to get your swing faster. But there's a number of things you can do for whether it's injury prevention or more performance I view that as I get older as something that I'm willing to do to prepare for golf is either the pre-round warm up or all the things I'm going to do off the course to get my body ready to play because I can exert a lot of control over that and it absolutely translates to less pain on the course, less injuries and more swing speed, more control over my body. A lot of good things can happen there. Something I'm really big
1: on as well is nutrition. And, you know, obviously you can
0: go back as far
1: as to your, your nutrition for to supplement and support your training, you know, eating enough protein, eating enough energy to allow, allow your physical training to be productive. But also, obviously, on-course nutrition and what you eat before a round of golf. I mean, I'm sure everybody's, everybody's experienced it where they've had a bad meal before they've gone out and played and then played awful. Maybe it was too high in fat for them or it was just... Usually it's, it's something that's different or if you eat at a different time than you normally would. So for me, for example, I don't actually eat breakfast. I haven't done for 12 years. Now they call it intermittent fasting, but uh, I just don't enjoy breakfast. And if I were to go and have a big breakfast before I play golf, even if it's a couple of hours before and I'm able to digest it, it just throws my body out of whack. I feel tired. My body's like, what's going on here? This is out of the out of the norm. And so, yeah, making sure that you're consistent with these things before you, you play a round of golf, making sure you're eating consistent amounts of food at the right times, making sure it's the... Same type of food as well. You know, your ratio of carbs, of fats, to proteins. So yeah, these things make a, a huge difference. And then on-course nutrition as well. If if you do that, which you should be doing, making sure that that's pretty pretty on point. Maybe we'll do a full episode
0: on this at some point if people are interested. I was just thinking that just because there's probably a different answer for each people. Like, I, like as you said, you don't eat breakfast. I do. So if I know I have a round early in the morning... The last thing I want in any round of golf is the lightheadedness, you know, that feeling where you're like, oh, I just don't have enough energy because I didn't eat enough because that's I'm used to eating three meals a day and some snacks. I I try and eat healthy, but I'm someone who if I play in the morning, I'm going to have a banana. I'm going to have some type of like granola energy type bar or even some nuts with me just to kind of make sure that I'm not going to have that feeling by the eighth hole where I'm like lightheaded I can't focus because oh I'm so hungry like and then my energy drops that affects my performance for sure um, or even when I I have kind of a whole routine for different parts of the day when I'm teeing off for tournaments if I'm teeing off at 12 30 or one o'clock I've got to make sure I have lunch in me if I don't eat lunch again I'm going to have a energy suck because I know what that feels like and I will not play as well so I know there's definitely better like I don't want You know, having a hot dog at the turn is probably not as good as eating nuts or fruits or something like that. But perhaps we'll have someone who knows. I know you know a lot about nutrition, but maybe we could have your knowledge and perhaps a nutritional expert on the show at one point. But that's a great idea. I I didn't have that in my book, and I'm glad you added it.
1: Yep. And hydration—that's a huge I know, one out here for Vegas. Yeah, water. Oh yeah, <laughs> I was... played once at 110 without my water bottle, and that was uh, brutal. I mean, there were little uh, the containers on the golf course, but they were every three or four holes, I believe. And it just—I couldn't get enough water down me. So yeah, that's that's huge if you're playing out in Vegas or, I mean, anywhere really, you should be hydrating well.
0: Oh yeah, we've had a brutal summer here with humidity. Just really, really dreadful where it's, you know, it's feeling like 110 degrees on the course. So I started using some of those electrolyte things. I think liquid IV is a popular one, but on the days I knew where I had a few stints where I was going to be playing in over hundred degrees for four days in a row. And I started adding a little electrolytes earlier, but that's definitely helpful. So let's move on to the second part of what you can control. We did a whole two part series on this, but I believe, you know, when people ask me like, what can I do to, you know, I have an important tournament coming up. I'm nervous, but there's a lot of these questions I get from golfers about how to solve, or not solve, but at least deal with, you know, all of the emotions, the anxiety, the temper, all the things that happen to us when we play. And my answer is usually quite simple. Exert control over your routine on the course. I know it's cliched. I'm not the first person to say it. There's been a million mental books about it, but it really is important because when you are out there on the course and we will get into the things you can't control, which is quite a bit, but I believe that's something where you're trying to exert as much control as possible. Are you a tennis fan, Adam?
1: I like to play, okay? I'm not very good at it. I'll watch it occasionally when Wimbledon's on. I really, I really enjoy Wimbledon. Why?
0: I just noticed something. I I used to really be into tennis. I played as a kid, and I used to just watch all the time. Maybe not as much anymore, but I was watching the U.S. Open yesterday, and Rafael Nadal was playing, who you know, I don't know if he's considered the best of all time, second, third. I mean, it's kind of becoming problematic between those three guys. I think they're towards the end of their careers. But I noticed, and my wife was noticing, he does the same. It's kind of funny. He always is, like, picking his wedgies, like – he has this same thing he goes through before every single shot, and it's kind of frenetic. He's wiping sweat off his face, but he goes through these like frenetic movements before every single shot. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, this guy's been doing this for so long, and like he just has these things he does over and over and over again. It probably provides him a lot of comfort. And we've probably talked about Tiger on this show where you can take a stopwatch to his pre-shot routine. Annika Sorenstam is another one in their majors. Whether it was the tee shot of the first hole or the tee shot of the 72nd hole with the tournament on the line, they probably wouldn't differ by more than a few milliseconds. So this is something that all the greats figure out. But how does like the normal, quote-unquote, recreational golfer help themselves? And yeah, routine is super important it doesn't solve everything but like that is one thing you can absolutely control on the course and i think it's a big one
1: yeah definitely if you look at all the best players in every sport as you said I, i'm thinking of a rugby player who, who does exactly the same kind of ticks and movements beforehand and if your routine is consistent then the outcomes generally are gonna be more consistent. And good routines have not only consistency, but they tend to be very rhythmical as well. That tends to be a calming thing. If you think of like music, it tends to get us in a certain state when there's a consistent beat that's rhythmical. It puts us in a certain state. Or if you wanna get a baby to fall asleep, you rock it to sleep in a consistent motion. Or you know, if your loved one snores a lot, It can be quite jarring if the snoring is random, but if the snoring at least is consistent, you can kind of fall asleep to it. So that might be a personal thing for me. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so consistency in our routines, understanding that you don't necessarily have to be high in thought, you know, really analytical, that, that low thought, low What am I trying to search for here, John? You don't have to be really analyzing everything as well and understanding that can help you get into that more flow-like state rather than being, right, I have to do this and then this and being analytical about everything. Just understanding that you can let that go a little bit and just, yeah, focusing on the routine can help you get into those states, definitely. I mean, there's studies done on it, right? Matt Bridges, my professor from university, he did a study... In professional golf, looking at the routines, and he found that, I mean, they related it to increased earnings. I think it was
0: like yep. one hundred yeah, eighty
1: thousand extra, right. which on the European tour is a is a lot. It would probably equate to a few million on the U.S. tour just by having more consistent routines, better timing, the same components. And it was a correlation study, but it's definitely worth thinking about. In my experience, coaching, when you coach someone to have a better routine and a more consistent routine, it does help them in my experience.
0: Yeah, I think the two big takeaways from that study were that consistency, meaning the amount of time they spent and what they did was, was a big predictor of success. And more importantly, for everyone listening to this, more time was not better. So I think it was on putting, they found that the players who actually took less time over the ball were more successful. And I think that's the pitfall of, of the routine is that someone's like, yeah, I want to develop a routine. And then they're watching golfers on TV and they're like, yeah, this thing needs to be two minutes long. It does not. It could be 10 seconds long. I just want it to have everything you do to have an actual function. Don't just do something just to do it. You and I did a long two-part episode on building a pre-shot and a post-shot routine so everyone can go back to that on our thoughts of you know the analysis phase which is kind of looking at your target and choosing the shot and the club selection getting ready for the shot which is like establishing you know your thoughts and your feels and then going through the execution phase which is you know sometimes people need a trigger like for me on the putting green I kind of square up my shoulders before I initiate my stroke. That's very helpful for me. But, you know, as you said, it doesn't have to be this super intense, like Tiger Woods. I used to do that when I was a kid. I'd I'd try and be like Tiger and so intense before my shots. And it it definitely backfired on me. Like right now, things like humming songs in my head on the putting green are very helpful. It's not very like flippant's the right word or lighthearted, but it's not. I'm just trying to get myself in a state where I can just kind of let my body know what it knows how to do. And I think that's one of the most important parts of a routine to kind of calm, calm all of those, hopefully <laughs> not too many of those swing thoughts that are popping into your head. I was actually playing a match the other day and with one of the best players in my area, we've become pretty good friends. And he paid me a great compliment we were giving each other some putts early in the match because we didn't want to win a hole based on someone, you know, missing a three or four footer. And then when we got to like the 14th or 15th hole, you're like, all right, now you got to make it. And I made one five footer and he was like, you know, I knew you were going to make that because you spent this. You did the same exact thing you you did on every other putt, and I always noticed that in players. So that was kind of a. He's a great player, and it was a, a nice compliment because I have worked really hard on my pre-shot routine with putting and elsewhere. It's something you do have to work on, off the course and on the course, and make it your own, make it repeatable, and make it functional. But yeah, the more and more pressure I play under, the more I value my routine and use it as my little cocoon that i can control around the golf ball is that a nice phrase to use cocoon that's what it feels like it's just like this warm and fuzzy place that i'm surrounding myself with
1: definitely i think you know after the shot as well if obviously a consistent routine doesn't mean the outcome's going to be better it does increase the likelihood according to all the research and, and anecdote as well but you can still have a perfectly well-timed routine that's as consistent as all your others and still miss the putt. However, I think that if you went into a putt, not just you, anybody listening, went into a putt and you changed your routine and you missed it. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> that would be more upsetting than if you said, "Right, I don't. I know I can't control whether I hold this putt, but I can control whether I do the same amount of time, whether I do my same routine." So if you walk into that putt, you do the same routine, and you can commit to that one thing that you can control. Even if you miss the putt, at least you can walk off saying, "Well, I can control. I controlled what I can control." Yep, you know, and you that's think about where. Part. <laughs> it, yeah, exactly. You think about where it goes wrong, right? This is something that everybody can relate to is when they're playing around a golf, the group in front is slow. What do they do? They lose a ball, they wave you through. What does everybody do? They're like, right, let's get out of their way quickly. Let's and they speed up their routine. Or they change something. Maybe some people might spend another practice swing because they're like, right, i got to make sure this is good. But you're changing your routine. And in most cases, people say, oh, I play awful when I have to go through someone because they've changed their routine usually. There's a a big factor in it. So again, just control what you can control. Going through someone is pressure for everybody, even at my level. But uh, if you can walk off or walk through that group saying, right, I at least did my routine consistently. I didn't rush anything or, or try to take too many practice swings. So yeah, just make sure you can control the controllables.
0: We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back.
1: If you want to support our show, make sure to check out our sponsor, LinkedIn, by visiting linkedin.com slash sweet spot to post your job for free. When you're hiring for your small business, it's essential that you get quality and qualified professionals, and that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs can help you find the right people for your team with the fast and free tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. They have a network of more than a billion professionals, many of which you can't find elsewhere. And this makes LinkedIn the best place to hire while making the process easy and intuitive. Because of how easy it is with LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses find qualified candidates in less than 24 hours. LinkedIn have just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier. That's why two and a half million businesses trust LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free at linkedin.com sweetspot spot. That's linkedin.com slash spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Link is in the show notes.
0: Yeah. And to add to that point about pressure and what it does is it does a couple of things. First is that I've noticed when some players feel more pressure or they get more nervous, they could speed things up. That's something I'm guilty of. So you have to be cognizant of that. I think another occurrence is that when someone feels like maybe towards the end of the round, when they're trying to You know, maybe if they have a chance to break 80 or 90 and then all of a sudden, like each shot coming down the stretch, is you're like, all right, this is more important because you're getting closer to the end. And some people will think, well, okay, I should take much longer over the ball to focus and make sure I do things right. And to your point is now you're doing something different. And in theory, it makes sense. You're like, this is more important. I should take a few more moments to go through this. But I think what it is actually doing is is it it's taking you out of your routine and then something different. This has happened to me a lot where I've blown a lot of good rounds over the years where I'm trying to like honestly exert more control and guide things. And it's just backfired on I me. And I've just found that when I spend the 20 seconds over the putt on the 18th hole like I do on the first hole, that gives me a much better chance. And there's certainly enough proof from other resources to show that, that that consistency is what helps you execute more effectively. It doesn't mean it's going to guarantee the result, like you said, but yeah, you, you almost have to resist the urge to speed things up or slow things down as the pressure changes. So yeah, routine is a huge one. When you
1: think about the some of the biological components to consistency in terms of everybody wants a consistent movement, right? Well, one of the ironies is... Or, um, is that the more you think about a movement, usually the less consistent it is. Now thinking about a movement is great to change it. So if you need a change of position or something, yes, it's great for that. But by definition, if, if thinking more about something increases your ability to change it, then changes inconsistency, right? And we even see in things like, I did a little experiment once, asking people to throw a ball into a bucket and they're not thinking about it. They're just you know, throwing a ball into a bucket and we measure how many times they get it in out of 10. And then you make them concentrate really hard. You say, right, think about the arm motion. And now you put some pressure on it and they get fewer balls into the bucket because they're thinking more about the motion and so how do, we lower, how do we lower thinking? Well, actually, routines are a great way of doing that. So the zone, I suppose, this state that we get into where we're performing movements, we're performing tasks more automatically, we're more likely to do those consistently when we have a good routine. So think about someone on a production line, for example. There's a conveyor belt going past and they're just doing the same thing over and over. What happens, because it's the same thing over and over, there's a rhythm, there's a consistency to it, they zone out and they actually do a really good job of it. Whereas if you then held a gun to those same people and said, right, you can't make a mistake, they're gonna be thrown out of that rhythm and they're gonna be thinking more about it, they're actually more likely to make a mistake. And so, again, that's just one reason why, from my perspective, from like a motor learning perspective, why rhythm and routines and consistency of routines very likely improves the consistency of outcomes. So it's just kind of building this big picture here of why they work and why you should do it.
0: Yeah, one of the greatest tournament players I knew when I first started kind of taking golf seriously again, and I got to play with him a lot, and he didn't throw me too many bones. The one that he did throw me that at the time seemed a little, it seemed like a little much to me, but then over time, as I competed more and more, it made more sense, and I started doing it myself. But, you know, he told me, he's like, even the way I pick up my tee after tee shots, he's like, everything I do on the course, especially when he's playing, in competition has a timing and a rhythm to it he told me this just like you're saying and he's like the way I pick up tees the way I do everything it's so rehearsed because he had been doing it for 30 or 40 years at that point and it was like that person on the assembly line or it was like someone you know a great example is from Dave Stockton's book with the someone driving a car not thinking about anything and all of a sudden they see a police officer in the rear view mirror and all of a sudden they're thinking about steering the wheel 30 degrees or applying enough pressure to the brake they start guiding the car and that does play out in golf for sure and the more you can work on this and be cognizant of it then you can create your own rhythm and balance to your game where you are i refer to it over and over in the book as like that autopilot state i want to like click this imaginary button when i step up to the ball go through it And it's like, I'm not even like cognizant of what happens because it's happened so many times in the same way. Really hard to do, it doesn't fix everything because I'm never gonna tell you that I don't step up over the ball sometimes, nervous about my swing or the moment. That of course happens to me and every other golfer, but it can mitigate it for sure. So yeah, control over routine is on the course stuff, like that's the one where I say like, yeah, that's the thing you can control the most.
1: And you get these two camps, not just in instruction, but just golf advice in general. You get one camp says, oh, you shouldn't think about your swing. You should just play with what you've got. And then you get the other camp, usually instructors, very technical, who think, no, you need to think about your swing. You need to move these, you know, move these things consciously. And both are right. It just depends on your goal. And usually for me and my own game and the people I I instruct, I say, look, if, if your goal is change, if you want to change the motion, then we're going to need to think about it. We're going to need to, in general, I mean, there are other ways of changing emotion without thinking about it. But yes, in general, you're going to have to think and be more concentrated on it and push yourself into uncomfortable boundaries. However, if you want to be more consistent, then actually think about things less. Because when we think about things less, the thing that comes out is actually what's ingrained the most. So that wouldn't be good advice for a shanker, right? If someone's someone's shanking it on the day and that's what's ingrained for them and that's what's coming out, they need to be the thinking golfer. Okay, you might be a little less consistent as that golfer, but I'd rather inconsistently hit close to the center than consistently shank it. Whereas on the other end of the scale, if you're an analytical golfer and you start playing well on a given day, it's probably best to learn to get out of your own way and be thinking less about it. So, you know, uh, focusing more on routines and the rhythms and things like that. So, yeah, it's just different goals and those will give you different interventions, really. What else can we control, John?
0: Moving along, I think we can give a few quick thoughts on what you can control because I'm kind of excited to get to what you can't control. But, you know, another thing I had in there is, you know, your reaction to shots or the idea of a post-shot routine. I think, you know, we've had, I actually got a great piece of information. It was actually from James Siegman's, uh wedge book where he actually talked about a post-shot routine. And I thought the way he described it was awesome. And I thought he had some great information about wedges in the book, but it was one of my greatest takeaways was that, and he's not the first person to say this. I think a lot of other mental coaches have this framework, but the concept of internalizing your good shots and and taking ownership of them. and A part of that is understanding what are good shots for your skill level, something I spent a lot of time on earlier in the four foundations of golf, if you've read it. So taking ownership of those good shops and and kind of building that mental library of good outcomes that you can draw upon. I don't think a lot of golfers do that enough. And then the flip side of that is kind of objectifying your poor results, or at least looking at them through a non-emotional way where you're kind of like, okay, what happened there? And we, we talk about this a lot on the show, how to read your ball flight, looking at feedback, saying, okay, you know, I chunked that seven iron rather than tossing your club You could say, all right, that was obviously a turf interaction issue, strike ground contact issue. That was my problem there on that shot. Okay, I'm going to take a mental note of that and move on to the next one. Or perhaps I'll spend some time after the round examining that and work on it in practice. But having that dichotomy of celebrating, internalizing, and taking a moment to kind of give yourself a little mental fist bump over the wins. And when the losses come, just saying like, okay, you know, I accept that that happened. Maybe take a few seconds to think about what happened. And then you move on to the next one. Because if you can control that part of golf, I think some really good things are going to happen for you in terms of your enjoyment of the game and your scoring level. Yeah, I call it Spock golf. Say be emotionless (laughs) about (laughs) the result
1: or as, as emotionless about it as you can and just analyze it. So, you know, it's there's nothing more, I wouldn't say frustrating, but if a player that I've been working with a long time, if they come to me and they say, oh, I've had a really bad round. Well, that's one thing. I mean, obviously that's upsetting to me. I don't want my players to have a bad round, but it's inevitable at some point. But if I ask them, well, why? If they can't give me answers like, well, I was hitting the ground in the wrong place, or I was just hitting everything out of the toe, or everything was left, those are the things I want to hear from a player. Not so much the emotion. Oh, I just couldn't get my head in the game. And oh, I just felt frustrated. And like that That to me is like, I, I'm not interested in that. I'm just, I'm a Spock instructor. Don't give me the emotions. Give me the facts. Like, where were you hitting the ground? How bad was it? Was it too deep? I wanna know the impact factors or, you know, the other things that we analyze, Whether there's mental faults. You could be hitting it great on day, just miss clubbing. So I want to know those things, and so we can control that at the end.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Whether it's taking a moment after each shot, or you know, we talk about the value of of post-round analysis, taking some time to think through your shots and what happened. And as you said, maybe the Spock method, the the non-emotional way, is much easier because I think a lot of times when we're done with a shot or your round. A lot of golfers default to sucking in the information from all the bad stuff. Oh, I could have shot, and, uh, you know, I could have shot a lower score without that triple on that hole or that hole or whatever happened there. Versus saying like, oh, and then you know, a lot of the times we do talk about those shots that keep us coming back for more. But like, yeah, I, I stuck it on the pin on seven and made that birdie. Like those are fun, and, and we gotta take those wins. But yeah, you, you, your reaction to shots in your round is something that you can exert some control over, and you should. And I think that framework is very helpful for any level of golfer, just because when you let your emotions dictate or lead the way in this game, and I'm someone who absolutely falls victim to that, it's going to be a lot harder to enjoy yourself and get better. Not to say that you can't have emotion in golf. You absolutely should, but there's got to be a balance for sure between the analytical part and the emotional part.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of an emotional player, believe it or not, as much as I say I'm a Spock instructor, but I just want to get the information out of it effectively, so I've con- I've learned to control my emotions much better. I do slip up occasionally. It is a frustrating game and we all want to play well, but that's where we default to our life philosophy of why Why are we out here. But Yeah, at the very least, get the information out of it because there's always going to be learning. I tweeted something the other day about, you know, the outcome of a shot is it's either a good shot to which pat yourself on the back. You've achieved a minor miracle and that's not even being joking about it. You know, every good shot is a minor miracle or if it's a bad shot, we can effectively learn from it too many players unfortunately hit bad shots they learn nothing from it they don't take the information from it they just take the emotion and that's not a good place to be
0: absolutely so yeah i think you know your reaction and all this is is something you can control on the course i think just two other concepts i'll throw in there real quickly i'm realizing now i didn't put it in this chapter but i do talk about it elsewhere in the book i think you can control you know your gratitude for playing And, you know, your overall happiness slash enjoyment level, meaning that, you know, someone like me for too long, I think I took golf for granted. I think I was using golf as some type of litmus test for like how good I was at something. And I didn't really take time to be grateful for the experience and enjoy it and just kind of take mental snapshots of the beauty of the golf course or just enjoying the conversation with my friends or my playing partners for the day. Now, I think that is something you can exert a lot of control over, and it's a kind of like a mindset shift. But, you know, being grateful and placing emphasis on fun and enjoyment and taking in the experience as I get older and older in this game, like I'm trying to shift a lot of control and effort into those things. As much as I do about all the other stuff we talk about with skill acquisition and strategy and all that stuff, because I can't do all of that well if I'm not having a good time and I'm not grateful to be out there. So I think that is something you can control on and off the golf course is kind of like your overall like mindset about golf in general and what you want out of it.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm big on life philosophy. It's something that I've worked on myself. So yeah, I'm pretty happy most of the time that I'm out on the golf course, I can definitely appreciate it, even if I'm not playing well. And that's a a learning skill.
0: Yeah, and obviously I don't want people to think that they have to like trick themselves, be like, I'm happy right now. I am happy right now. <laughs> when they've just these 15 shanks in a row. <laughs> yeah, with that, yeah, when I just like pumped three out of bounds in a row. Like, trust me, I've been there. I, <laughs> I'll talk about it later in this when we talk about variability of score. But I had a tournament this year where I think I had a quadruple bogey and a triple bogey and the quadruple bogey came on like the 15th hole really when I was like trying to just grind out a finish and be respectable. And I think I put one in the water and then like put another one in the penalty area. And I was just like, <laughs> it was one of those moments like the, the serenity now type things and I'm like, just get me off the golf course right now. So I, I, want to fully admit that even as much as i place emphasis on that there are times where like you just can't take anymore and that's okay too golf will do that to you in any event let's wrap up we've spent a lot of time on what you can control because it is important but let's put a split here and start going over into probably the more important thing to accept is what you can't control about golf Right I just I think that's one of the game's great challenges is letting go. Right?: Yep, I'm
1: thinking about I've written some notes here about luck. And you know for, for me, luck is in a given task, you have certain odds, right, mathematically, so say it's roulette, you've got almost a 50- 50 chance of rolling red or black. And if you beat those odds, I would define that as good luck. So, you know, if you do 70% red and and you're winning 70% of the time on on roulette, you're lucky effectively, you're beating the odds. And especially if you have no influence on it. Um, And like, you know, in roulette short term, you can do, I live in Vegas, so I'll often walk past the roulette tables and I'll see like there's 10 reds in a row or 10 blacks in a row. And I'm sure the person on that table who's winning, they feel like they they have control over that. They feel like they're doing something to influence it. It's why a lot of people get suckered into gambling and they, you know, become addicts to it. But, you know, you have enough runs at it and you'll get closer to that 50% number or reversion to the mean. And in golf, I think, you know, how that relates to golf is we all have this mean this average of what our playing ability is and some of our games are going to be a lot better than that and some of our games are going to be a lot worse than that and when we're playing really well which we can't control ultimately we're not in as much control of that as we think we are you've got to understand you can't play your best golf all of the time i mean by definition it wouldn't be your best golf So, sorry, I don't know if that's a good introduction to this, but what are your thoughts on that, John?
0: No, I mean, that's, you know, my first main bullet point in the chapter is the variability of your technique and skill, which is essentially what you're saying too, is that you cannot control, again, to your point, everyone has this baseline skill level or potential in golf. That's different for a tour player. That's different for, you know, the intermediate weekend warrior and you can't control what golfer shows up day to day. I think that's the most frustrating part. And especially when we look at you know the things we talk about all the time, the impact conditions that you have to satisfy to hit functional or good golf shots or poor ones when they go out of whack is that every day they're changing. So we just did an episode on club path we've done episodes on face control. I think face control is one big variable in the game that just shows up all the time. You know, one day you're going to show up and a lot of shots are going to the right and you're like, what the heck is going on? And then one day you're pulling all of them. If you're a right-handed golfer, some days your swing path will be more extreme and there's more curvature other days or the matchup between the two creates all these different types of ball flights. One day you're chunking it the next day, you know, you could be thinning it. So we're met with this circumstance where even tour players, they talk about this on their own level, as great as they are. You know, you'll have a golfer sometimes who shows up and shoots a 65, and I've looked it up. Then you get at the same golfer shoots a 78 the next day in less than 24 hours. It happens at that level. And then you hear the interview afterwards. And honestly, a lot of them are just befuddled. They've been playing this game for decades at the highest level, and they still get frustrated by it. Which is crazy to think about, but it's true. And you just Yeah, you know, I think that's I believe that's probably the hardest thing to accept of what you can't control in this game is that one day you've got it and let's say you are at the high end of your potential in terms of, you know, your ball striking skills for that day, you're driving it well, you're hitting some good iron shots, maybe you made a few putts here or there. And then the next day it's all gone. You're clueless and you've lost Hopefully, you didn't lose it for good, but sometimes it feels like you're staring into the abyss. You're like, did I just lose it? Am I, am I like lost here right now? <laughs> Is this panic mode? Like some golfers absolutely could feel like that. So, yeah, I think just like the variability of your skill, your technique, your scoring from day to day, from week to week, or even from month to month, you know, you can exert some control over that, but it's always going to be in this range that's kind of like, Whoa! What just happened there? <laughs> like it's crazy. This game, it really is.
1: Yeah, some interesting thoughts are coming up about the technical parts that are controllable in terms of you know what we talk about with impact factors—the things that actually di- directly affect the result. And there are c- certain skills uh, and techniques that are more controllable, like sure, swing your maximum speed. Maximum speed, swing speed is yep. pretty controllable, or controllable enough that you can get the ball to within tour range. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, you never, if you're hitting a full iron, for example, you're never going to really jump up five mile an hour accidentally and, and sail it over the back of the green. That's it's rare that you'd sail it over the back of the green or hit it short because of a swing speed change. I mean, it can happen, but it's rare. Even path. I mean, path is pretty controllable to the level that we need it to be. And it's pretty consistent as well. Face strike. Now, while that's kind of variable from day to day, whether you hit toe or heel, it's certainly controllable. If, say, for example, I wake up and I'm hitting it heel, I can move it into an acceptable range very consciously and very quickly, and I train my players to be able to do it. Now, the uncontrollable things or the less controllable things that actually make a big difference on the outcome and that probably where most people's bad days come from are face direction and ground contact and I think it's because they're very sensitive things as well we talk about how you know if if you get the face direction just a little off it's going to have a bigger effect on the outcome much bigger than the swing path changes and ground contact is very changeable from shot to shot just because of arc depth and I don't want to get too much into that, but that's whether you go a little deeper into the grass or a little shallower through the grass. And so even an eighth of an inch of change can have a huge effect on ground contact. So it's so sensitive that, and these things are not as in control of us as we think. When I say us, I'm gonna get really deep here, John. You know, <laughs> I, I did. A, <laughs> I used to do a lot of reading around the brain and things like consciousness. And so how I would define consciousness is the voice in our head. That's my definition. So it's the I, you know, when you talk to yourself, that is what I define as consciousness. And the I in our head, the person who talks to us believes we're in control, right? Oh, if I want to pick this glass up, I'll pick this glass up. And if I want to do this, I'll do that. And yes, to a certain extent, to those big things, we are in control. But when it comes to really fine motor skills, like controlling whether we're, we go through the grass an eighth of an inch higher or lower, we can't consciously just choose these things. Or we can't consciously choose to present the face half a degree more closed or more open. Now you can get better at these things. So while in the moment you can't choose, through training, you can train yourself to become better at them and improve control, but ultimately we can't decide to just do something and do it. If that does this make sense to you, John? Oh my yeah, God, way I mean, off.
0: <laughs> well, when you talk about I get asked, what did it take for you to get a scratch golfer? And I always answer like, I just got control of the club face more. I one of my earliest posts on practical golf where I was probably deleted at this point because it was so bad. But I had one concept in there that I liked where I talked like, what is better golf? And I just had two different images of two lines. And it really was just a representation of dispersion. I said, you get two lines that are pretty wide apart. Your goal is to go from the left one where they're really wide apart to the right one where they're not so wide apart. And I guess the point I was trying to make is that I wasn't thinking in terms of like face control at that point. I was just thinking of you're never going to have complete control of where your golf ball goes, but if you can narrow it a bit, that is how you become a better scorer because, you know, that's less tee shots out of bounds or in the trees. That's more greens and regulation. It's just, you know, that lateral dispersion is a big determinant of scoring in this game. So, but at the same time, you have to accept that like, it is pretty damn wide. You know, a great PGA Tour golfer, their dispersion on their driver is always going to be around 65 yards for most players. That's really wide still. But that does still mean that they have a lot of control. Hopefully that gets to your point a bit. But yeah, you know, when you talked about ground contact, those minor little changes are the difference between... You know, doing a beaver pelt behind the ball and it goes 50 yards in front of you versus if you were maybe half an inch more forward, maybe you got away with it a little bit and the ball lands just before the green. That could be worth a half a stroke over the long run. So yeah, these these little things add up over time. You can get better at them, but you're never going to control them completely. Yeah, I'd say you can influence patterns, definitely. Uh, That's in
1: your control to influence a pattern. If you're slice, 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 there's no reason why you can't slice it less but to control you know exactly where you hit it as to your point with elite level players you know you look at them with the irons and the dispersion is what 40 yards wide on average and with a driver it's like 60 yards wide on average so One of the ways I had this explained to me, and I hope people take this in the right context, is that think about when this goes wrong with our brain in control of certain things. So certain brain diseases like maybe having a stroke or Parkinson's, for example. So you would think if we were truly in control, someone with Parkinson's would just be able to stop shaking. But they can't because they're not in control. The brain or, or whatever's happening in that scenario is in control of it. They can't consciously control it. And in golf, effectively, we've all got a low level of that. We've all get, got a low, I hope this is taken the right way, but we've all got a low level of Parkinson's in a way and that we can't control precisely. There's always gonna be a certain amount of variability that is outside of our control. And yeah, for some it's bigger, for some it's smaller, that variability. Through training, you can make it smaller, but when you look at the best in the world who are training 10 hours a day every day for 30 years, they still have 60-yard wide dispersions. So we have to accept that there's only so good that we can become at this game. And if you're not practicing 10 hours a day for 30 years, you shouldn't expect to have the same dispersion as a tour pro. And I shouldn't have to say that because you don't have to say that to someone picking up piano for the first time right why can't i do beethoven straight away it's like well you know, <laughs> you know you didn't uh you haven't practiced as much as he has but in golf there are a lot of golfers out there who you know only practice one hour a week and they expect to have tour level games or dispersions
0: you know what that's such an interesting example because there are moments and i think why golf tricks us is that you know you take up the piano you're never going to accidentally play beethoven's fifth but you know, a golfer can drain a 50 foot putt or hit a wedge to two feet from a hundred yards. Like they get these little tastes here and there of perfection and they're like, oh, I want to do more of that. And they can't. But another thing I was thinking about in terms of control, I think one of the reasons pro golf and a lot of amateur golf has flocked towards swing speed is because we realize that, well, I think Brody opened the floodgates with distance and its value and assigning, you know, the strokes to it. But we realize that, you know, if you train your body properly, you can show up to the course or pros found up, I can show up to the course with 120 miles an hour swing speed every single week, maybe one or two, three miles an hour, more or less, depending on how my body is. But I'm showing up hitting it, you know, I can go from 280 to 320 and I can control that every week. You can't control the putter getting hot or cold, like the great putter's. Yes, they get hot more, but they're going to get there's more of a variability in their performance. And in terms of its influence on score, it wasn't as important as we once thought. So I think one of the reasons that people have flocked towards swing speed is because you can show up with it all the time and you can control it and it's worth something. And it's why we've, you know, we've talked about a bit on this show. I think it's gotten in vogue for good reason. But that is one thing that you can exert more control over versus the other impact conditions like face control. Like, yeah, that that's a very fine motor pattern that, you know, little, little, little changes could be the difference of a ball ending up on the right side of the fairway or out of bounds. It's that minute.
1: You can exert influence over patterns and you can even improve your control of these things but we can't fully control these things. Now, this is an interesting thing, and this is probably why lots of people get so sucked into technique work. And I've only ever had one guy do say this to me. It was really interesting. It did make me pause when I was instructing him. He was very reluctant to do the skill work You know, the toe, heel, left and right, stuff like that. He was very, very swing-oriented. And he was very, very backswing-oriented as well. And I had to stop him one day and say, why are you focusing so much on the backswing? And he said to me, you know what, Adam, it's the only thing I feel I can control. And that made sense, it made sense. It, uh, Ray, if you're listening, I remember this. You probably said this ten, seven <laughs> 10, seven years ago now. But yeah, he said, it's the only thing I, can f- I feel I can control. Like it's hard, he said for him, it was hard to control more toe or heel. But he felt like he could put the club in a a more inside or more outside backswing position. So that certainly makes sense. And that's probably why people flock to it. Unfortunately, the ball doesn't give, give a hoot whether you put it into an inside or outside position. Not to say these things don't have an influence overall. It's just the ball doesn't respond to that. So that made me say, well, yeah, that's a good argument against skill work here. You know, that it feels less controllable but all i would say to that is you can improve your feel of control and i I demonstrate this with people because you know the very first time people do skill training i give them a pro level task i say can you move it can you hit it three millimeters towards the toe and they have no idea how to do it can you move it six millimeters towards the toe no idea how to do it but then i give them a simple task i say can you just hit the toe half to anywhere on the toe half. And they can do that if, you know, maybe with a putting swing. And so they are developing or or showing that level of control there. And then as they practice it more, they start to refine their ability to do that. And maybe after a few months, they can do the, the three millimeters more toe or heel. So you will get better at these things over time. You do build control, but ultimately, things like ground contact, face direction, there's only so good you can be at it and there's and we just have to accept it.
0: Yeah, and that's part of the... I view it as like letting go of control to almost gain a little bit more control. Just knowing that... I'm thinking around the hat of the other week, I think I was playing really well. I think I was two or three under and then out of nowhere, I just blasted a tee shot so far right. Probably the worst tee shot I've hit all year. Out of bounds, gone. And I just was like whoa (laughs) and that presented with me with an opportunity to either kind of go crazy on myself and say oh you just ruined the momentum of your round versus just kind of in the moment i'm like well that was supposed to happen eventually i just can't you know that is what it is i just teed up the next one i made my double bogey and i moved on it's just crazy like no matter how good or not great you are at this game like there is going to be some version of that and I know there's golfers who reach out to us saying like, I'm hitting 20 shanks in a row and when things could get really dark. And I think we'll do an episode on that when when things do get dark because that that's a whole other topic that can happen to people when, when things do go very badly, but yeah, you just have to let go. And and I think another thing about, we're talking about variability, you alluded to it before, just scoring, understanding that, you know, if you're 20 handicapped, 10 scratch pro golfer, there is this range, just like the dispersion of your tee shots, you know, your iron shots, whatever you want to focus on in terms of variability in this game and what you don't have or control over. But that does translate to score. And I think this year I had one of the biggest ranges of my best to worst round. That round I was talking about earlier where I had the triple and a quad in the same tournament. I shot an 86. And this was a tournament that I came into with great form, was playing. I had shot my best ever score. We had an episode I shot a 64, I think a few weeks before. And I just showed up and just something wasn't right. I think it was because the week before I was releasing the book, I was probably a little nervous and my mind was elsewhere. But I just like, for some reason, like I was not standing over the ball very well that day and some very bizarre things were happening. And it was a struggle, but I had to get through it. I had to understand that like, yeah, I was the golfer who shot the 64. That was, you know, I celebrated myself and was super happy about it. I'll probably frame the scorecard. But I also have to accept that I also am the golfer who shot the 86 where things just kind of fell apart. (laughs) There was nothing I could do about it. I tried to pull every trick in the book I had, focusing myself. And I told you on the 15th hole, I made that quadruple bogey. It just happened. I tried my best not to make it happen, but it happened. I had no control over it. And when the round was over, yeah, I was upset, but I just had to let go of it immediately and say, you know what, that's just part of the game. I'm going to have to accept that just like I accepted the good ones. And it stung, but that's just part of the deal. You have to accept these wide range of scoring outcomes as well.
1: Yeah, the the ability to, when you're playing bad, just control the outcome. Some days we have it, right? We can We feel great our body is responding almost exactly to what our brain tells it to. You know, that I says, right, I want you to do more of this and, and you do exactly that. And it just feels like, wow, I'm in control of my body. I'm never gonna lose this. And then some days you're just having a bad day and you cannot get it back on track. And we can't control whether we have those days or not. We just have to kind of accept that they're gonna happen occasionally. And even on the golf course, you know, you said letting go of control sometimes. Yeah, if you if you hit a bad shot, sometimes you're going to need to intervene. You know, if you hit a bad shot, you, you're you going to need to get in there and fix it. And sometimes you've got to let go. I actually have a system for this when I'm playing and it it's, depends on the fault. So say, for example, I hit a drive left. Well, my first one, I let go. Doesn't matter to me. Now if I hit two in a row that are the same I will start to intervene so again that's in my control whether I intervene or not and when I intervene or if I hit three of the same shot in maybe in five shots so you know three duck hooks out of the last five shots that's what that's a sign for me to intervene as well Uh, I'm much quicker if I were to shank one. If I hit one shank, I will be quickly changing that because usually a face contact pattern is very consistent on the day. So you can jump in and intervene a little quicker with that. But yeah, anyway, I'm tailing off a little bit, but the idea of when to intervene is in your control as well.
0: Well, yeah, I think the mark or what I see as golf improvement is everything that happens in between to those two extremes I described. So, your absolute best days were you just like, everything's great. You know, I shot my best round ever. You know, hats off, soak it in, enjoy it. And then the other extreme of that is what I just described. I tried everything I could to save that round, I couldn't do it. I didn't give up, but it just didn't happen for me. So, those are the two extremes. I don't think those are kind of the less probable outcomes. Everything in between, that's what I view as golf improvement. So all the tools that we're giving you, whether it's interventions, if you need them, strategic decisions, your routine, everything you're doing to prepare on and off the course and what you can control. That's how you turn the rounds that used to be an 85 into an 80 or 104 into a 97. You're using your tools. You're making better decisions. You're not giving up that's where you're hanging your hat on control and the scores do follow. And that's usually what most golfers report back is like, yeah, I figured out a way to turn that 92 into an 87. That absolutely can happen. But I do want people to understand that, yes, there are those extremes on both ends and on the lower end, I'm sorry, on the higher end, when things don't go well, sometimes it's just not going to work out for you and that's okay too. But that doesn't mean you give up in my opinion, if you want to get better. Um, so that's, you know, there's always a nuance to this type of topic. And I wanted to put that in there is that I really think true improvement is everything that happens in between and kind of shifting those goalposts to lower scores on both ends with the acceptance that, you know, the bad stuff can just happen. And that is, that's just golf. It's part of it. It's a humbling game.
1: the, the lower scores on both ends is an interesting point because I would say that most tweets that we get, and I see your tweets as well, that are like, oh, I just shot my best score, which is great, obviously. It's really, really nice to learn. That's when I get the emails, I just shot my best score. It's very rare. I can't even remember an email of someone saying, oh, my worst score is much better this year. <laughs> you know, my worst score before was 95. Now the worst score I've had this year is 90. That's an improvement. Maybe even your lower end didn't go down, but your upper end went down and that will improve your your overall handicap. And that's, it's Yeah,
0: exactly. I tell that to people all the time because I don't want them to think it's just like, obviously I'm very, you know, happy to get these emails as well. But I also want to hear about, you know, what happened when things, and I have gotten some of those, you know, with, I think people respond well to the managing expectation topics and strategy in particular with this is that they're saying, wow, you know, I, I, Now that I understand the rules of what I can expect of myself on the course, it feels a little bit easier. And then like, yeah, they're going to notice that, well, I don't have so many 98s anymore. There are more 92s. That is the less sexy part of golf improvement. But it is, I think it perhaps is more important than making your lower scores even lower. Because those are the days where you have to kind of dig in more. And that's where a lot of golfers give up and don't access that toolkit is when they're struggling a little bit. And those are kind of the low-hanging fruit for scoring and handicap reduction, in my opinion, because if you do stick with it and you know the right rules, it's much easier to save those triple, quadruple bogeys and turn them into doubles or bogeys than it is to make a bunch of pars and birdies in golf. So that's an important one that I always try to stress to people is that, yeah, the lower end is important, but the higher end is perhaps more important. So think about that as well. And on the non-scoring
1: part, I suppose when thinking about this, although no one said to me specifically that I can remember my higher scores are lower. I do get a lot of people say to me, since, you know, doing your strike plan or accuracy plan or having a lesson with me, they say, since I've been doing your philosophies, when this bad event used to happen, I was stuck But now I know how to change it quickly. So say, for example, a shank. There are lots of players out there who, if they shanked one, that was it. That was their day. They're going to shank 15, 20 in a round, if not have to walk off. Whereas now, since doing the strike plan, they're like, okay, if I shank one, it happened, I can't control that. But I know the next one's not going to shank. Or I'm going to hit much fewer shanks doing a round of golf. So yeah, those are the things that are controllable. Like we said, the patterns, you can't control the everything but you can control the patterns in certain things. you can control the upper end through not giving up that's in your control through focusing on your routine all the stuff that we talked about so far what else you got for me john we've that okay we, we so do have environment so, i know that
0: yeah we're, we're rounding the corner here heading towards our finish so to speak but yeah i think just to sum all that up Variability you cannot control in this game, you have to accept a lot of it. The other thing I put in this chapter in my book is is the universe. <laughs> you know we play golf outdoors, uneven terrain in the elements, you know different temperatures, wind patterns, different altitudes there's a lot of things that happen in this game where it's just physics, but we feel like it's personal. We always talk about the golf gods like these. I can't tell you how many times in my life where I've like hit that drive and then it hits the cart path (laughs) and bounces out of bounds. And I'm like, you got to be effing kidding me. Like, how did that happen? And it seems like it's personal or you hit that drive and it like hits that last little lip of the bunker and goes back in where, you know, if it flew three feet further, you know, would have careened back onto the fairway. So there's all these little events in the game that happen or even like with the wind you know, I play in windy conditions. I'm sure you grew up in windy conditions in Wales, I'm sure where, you know, some days the wind is not consistent. So you'll hit a shot expecting, you know, you got a 15, 20 mile per hour headwind. And all of a sudden, you know, you you plan for that and you go to hit it and the wind just stops. <laughs> and You're watching your ball just like take off way over your target. You know, you went through the routine, you picked the right target, you made the right you know, club selection based on the wind, but the rules changed when the ball was in the air. And that was honestly just, uh, I'm not too familiar with uh, why wind does what it does, but I just know that sometimes it stops, sometimes it changes directions. And that little white ball will react to that and you cannot control that. It's just part of this game. So I think that's one of the more infuriating things about golf is that the elements can really... And the terrain can just make all these these outcomes that feel personal and we take them personally, but they're not. It's just the randomness of the game. And sometimes, you know, we, we get the good bounces and sometimes we get the bad ones and it's it's really hard to deal with.
1: There are even things like how many blades of grass get trapped between the club face and the ball can have a big effect on the outcome. It can change the spin rate, launch angle, distance. So, you know, if you're coming out of the rough, whether you get a flyer or whether it comes out nicely, you don't know. And even mud balls as well. I sometimes play, I hit the ball so high with my driver, I often get mud balls and I can predict, you know, the, the rule for a mud ball is if the mud is on the right, the ball's going to go yeah, left. Been,
0: didn't but they find that that, that wasn't yeah, doesn't that didn't they find that that's always not like true? I remember somebody to test on that, uh-huh. but yeah, I've always heard that like yeah, if it's if it's on the right it, it will curve more to the left. Well, if it's not, I'd
1: say anecdotally it works what, what is it well. Nine, yeah 60 percent of the
0: time it works every you're time doing I your, say you're doing your sex Nine. panther reference for the same two episodes in a row nice
1: <laughs> did i do it again uh, you yeah, did, did you did yeah time. you
0: did it okay. on the club path and swing direction one but yeah that's congratulations <laughs> on two sex panther references be a, from anchorman be a, a running some. theme
1: I'll try and get it into every episode from now on. But yeah, I'd say that that mud ball rule that I just said, for me at least, I'd say 90% of the time it works every time. But yeah, there are other things like a golf ball is not perfectly symmetrical inside, you know, how they have different layers to them. Well, if you cut open a golf ball, you'll see some of those layers have sunk down and uh, in my material science lectures uh, the professor used to show me the manufacturing process for golf balls and it was kind of laughable how imbalanced some of the golf balls can be to the point where that we used to use a stimp meter and roll the ball across the carpet and note down where it touched the skirting board and we did the same thing rolled at the same speed the same everything was exactly the same and the ball would hit different points on the skirting board. So in terms of putting, that just goes to show that you can't hole every single putt. Um, Dave Peltz proved this, I think with his putting robot, he set it up at 12 feet and it only hold about 40% of putts or something like that. Maybe it was 60% of putts, but it wasn't anywhere near 100%. Just from the imbalanced balls, green imperfections, maybe the putter head hit the edge of a dimple differently.
0: Yeah, green imperfections are huge. I think they've never nailed it down. I think I asked Sasha McKenzie this, but you know, they think upwards of 50% of putts outside of like a certain distance of 15 or 20 feet are because of green imperfections they're missed. So it's a living surface and it changes throughout the day it's crazy but you can't control that and you can imagine some days you could probably make a
1: slightly poor stroke and those imperfections and it knock it yeah. in and yeah, other exactly. days you could be stroking perfectly and the imperfections take it away from you even when the full swing and i know we're going to get gene parenti on at some point hopefully he's got a swing robot yeah and we definitely uh, need to have him on <laughs> Yeah, he told me. I asked him. So when you're hitting balls with a robot, are they all landing on are the balls landing on each other? <laughs> which obviously would be ridiculous, but you'd think they'd land quite close. And he said, no. At about two hundred yards, you've got a twenty foot either side dispersion, so like a forty foot circle for a swing robot, which is like it's it's doing the exact same thing every time. And this might be the shaft might be kicking slightly differently. The ball design, you know, or the ball manufacturing process. Is not the same. Dimples are going to be different. Maybe the wind gusts up a little bit, but he said these were even in calm conditions. So, you know, we can't ever expect to hit the ball closer than 20 feet On average, well obviously some are going to go closer than that, some are going to go farther away than that, but if you can't expect at 200 yards to be closer than 20 feet on average because even a robot can't do that. If you are closer than that, it's that luck element coming in, you're beating the odds and it won't be for long because reversion to the mean is coming.
0: Yeah, I think Marty Jertson spoke about that with some of the ping robot testing. Regarding the golf balls, we're going to have him and Chris Brody on the show soon from Ballnamic and their testing to talk about. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of things about golf balls we didn't know and we know way more about and the QA testing and the unevenness of the core and the outside of the ball. But yeah, that there's these little things that add up over time to all these, again, variability of the game that we we can't control. I often think of like some memories I have in tournaments where like I've gotten these incredibly good breaks and then bad breaks. I'm thinking back to around, I think it was three years ago or four years ago, I I had a really good chance of making the US Mid-Am and I was coming down the stretch, kind of in the hunt, the toughest par four on the course. was like an uphill 450 yard par four. And at this point in the round, I needed to probably make one or two birdies. So I just striped my drive as good as I could I walk up to my ball, and I'm like, I must have hit it like 310 uphill. I just crushed it. And this thing was in the middle of like the worst divot I've ever seen. Like not one of those divots where you can kind of just, you know, strike ball first and then turf. It was it was not good, and I did as best as I could, but it, it landed well short of the green. I, I didn't judge it properly, and it led to a late bogey. But then in another tournament, I remember – It was my first chance of making it into the Ike, which is our our big amateur tournament around here. And on the 18th hole, I knew I had to par it. I knew where I stood. And I hit my tee shot. I pull hooked it. And as it's in the air, I'm like, you jerk. You blew it. It hits off of a hill that was out of bounds and just shoots like 90 degrees to the right, back in bounds, and I make par. Just total luck. But again, like these... In the moment it feels like, yep, that's one from the golf gods and that's one against you. But it's not it's just like it, it really is like these are just, you know, physics and whatever it is, you know, it just these things happen. And I think the best thing you can do is of course when you get the good breaks, you, you obviously feel good about them, but when these moments feel like where golf is personally attacking you, it's not. Like, these things are going to happen over the long run. You play long enough, you have enough repetitions, you're going to get these outcomes that are, like, they seem wild and unfair, but that's part of, you know, especially if you play, like, Lynx golf, think of all the crazy bounces you get on that that terrain. Well, the other thing that will
1: make you feel better about luck is we have to understand we're, we're much more likely to get bad luck than good luck because if you can, if you imagine, say, you hit a shot, to X location in space. Well, there's only a certain amount of ways that ball could get closer to the hole but there are more ways the the ball could get farther away from it in a worse position. So there are more probabilities of a bad bounce than a good bounce or even if the wind is influencing it, you you hit a shot, the wind gusts up a little, little bit more or even dies down, there are more ways that that shot could have a bad luck experience, you know, bounce farther away or finish farther from the hole and closer to it. I mean, I'm sure there's there's more to it than this, but if you just imagine the ball location and 360 degrees around it, you've probably got 90 degrees where the ball's getting closer to it and 90 degrees where it's getting farther away from it because it could go shorter, it could go left, it could go longer than, than it. Whereas, uh, yeah, there's only a, a certain range where it could go closer, really.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of like the wind, we did have that episode with Marty Jerson and Chris Brody. Really good information on the elements, particularly the wind. You know, somebody who plays a lot in the wind, when you're stepping on the course and you know it's windy, you have to go with the mentality is like, I'm not going to fight the wind. I'm going to succumb to it. I'm going to just know that today is going to be a little harder the ball's not going to do what I want it to do as much. I found that on the days where it was windy where I wanted to fight against it, that's when things didn't go well. So, yeah, I think that's one of the harder things for... I know not a lot of golfers don't always play in windy conditions, but sometimes you know, they move to different parts of the world or their country, and all of a sudden they're playing in windier conditions. And it's very hard to accept because it is so random. The wind changes directions I think that's one of the fascinating parts of the game, but yeah, it's, uh, I always think that I put this in the book. We don't curse on this show, but maybe I'll let it slip. But you remember Forrest Gump, that awesome movie from the nineties. Do you remember it very well? Yeah. Course, so that yeah. there's that, there's that one scene where he decides to just start running cross country and then he kind of gets those, those people following him. <laughs> there's this part where he's running with this guy and he like runs through a pile of dog shit. And the guy's like, holy cow. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. He's like, you just stepped in a huge pile of shit. And he, Forrest is like, it happens. And he's like, what, shit? And he's like, yep. And <laughs> that's why I put, I put in the book. The great philosopher Forrest Gump sums it up nicely in this quote. Shit happens. Is not and where I really the
1: t-shirts came from.
0: Yeah, exa- That exactly. That's where the t-shirts came from. And the bumper stickers, I believe, too, that were probably big in, I think, the 80s. But, yeah, I think that's like kind of a rallying call for golf is that you just have to understand that that this part of like giving up to the universe and the elements and all the crazy stuff that happens on the course, sometimes you just have to shrug your shoulders like Forrest and just say, shit happens. It is really part of the game.
1: There are people who try to control the shit, <laughs> the bad luck. Um, so Bry- <laughs> Bryson would be an example of this. And that's not a knock on him. He's actually doing a good job by doing that. So things like uh, we talked about how imbalanced golf balls can be yeah he's he's testing and so one way <laughs> yeah one way around that and this was actually from dave pelt so this is the first time i ever heard of it is putting the ball in salt so it floats is that right salt or saline solution or something like that so yeah it
0: i think floats. there's i think there's also some devices that can measure and then you just kind of throw out the bad ones i can't imagine that many golfers are willing to go through that exercise though
1: <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it's a little bit it's too much but yeah you basically when you're floating the golf ball the heavy side is going to go to the bottom you place a little mark on the top to show the light side and then you draw a circle around the ball so the ball is basically rolling end over end heavy and light instead of the heavier light side being on the left or right side of the ball which would cause it to be offline or curve offline for any given stroke But yeah, all this stuff is kind of overkill. But I mean, there are certain things, certain interesting technologies that are coming out. Let's talk about shaft response. So when we swing a golf club, we're obviously each time we swing it, we swing it slightly differently. So there's always going to be some variability in our forces and torques that we input into the shaft. And then that shaft is going to respond differently down at the bottom, depending on that. Now, they're coming up with technologies. Sasho will be able to talk to this more, that respond more consistently for any given input inconsistencies. So even if if two players were making the same swings and they both made 100 swings, so there's the same variability, one shaft would perform more consistently. So again, we'll have to get Sasho on to talk about that.
0: Yeah, I'm sure technology over the next... You know, we always say, what are they going to come up with next? But I'm sure there will be more stuff that helps alleviate some of these things, but never eliminates them entirely. That's pretty much, I mean, we we took the one of the shortest chapters in my book and turned it into an hour and a half conversation here. <laughs> no, no, no surprise. That's pretty much everything I had on my list. Of course, you can come up with your own lists of, you know, what you can control and can't control, but... If you had any more thoughts on what you can't control, we can throw them in there. But that's, I try and think of things simply in golf. So, you know, I think of what I can't control as just, again, the variable nature of this game, whether it's what type of skills you show up with on the course, your scoring, or just like the quote unquote unfairness of playing outside and the elements and what it can do with bounces and wind and all the other stuff that happens the more you squeeze on that stuff and try and control it, I think the worst things are going to go for you in this game. So I've had to, and it's been really hard for me and I've still probably got a ways to go. I've had to just try and let go of these things and accept them. And it's hard to do. And and I think golf tricks us into thinking we can control a lot of these these things and you just can't. You really can't.
1: Yeah. I think it's important to understand these things just to help you get through the bad days. The more you... Get your golf philosophy in check. That's going to make you a lot calmer, more happy throughout the rounds. You're just going to enjoy the game more, and that's why we all play this, right? We play yep. it to enjoy it more.
0: So, quick summary: my big three of what you can control are preparation. So, a lot of the ideas we talked about: practicing, studying a golf course, a strategic plan, getting your body ready, whether it's a pre-round warm up or you know exercise routines you're going to do off the course. That's, you know, you can exert a ton of control on your preparation off the course. And when you get on the course, I believe you hang your hat on your routine, which we kind of went to. We have a whole, we have two episodes on that. If you go back in our library, your reactions, your post-shot routines, you know, that's what you could exert some control over your attitude, your gratefulness, even your happiness level. You can try, you can exert some control on those things. And I think it makes sense to put your energy there. You don't have unlimited energy and attention in golf. So I think those are things where it's productive to put your energy. If you start putting your energy and focus and worrying about the other stuff, the, the variability of this game, the unpredictability, the stupid bounces, the wind, all of that stuff, the more you focus and get angry on that stuff, That's just taking away time and space in your head and your energy level that could be focused on the things you can control or at least exert some control over. So that is, you know, my main rallying call and what I've figured out in in 25 years in this game and trying to get better at it is that you place your emphasis there rather than worrying about all the stupid stuff in this game that you can't control. So that's my closing statement there on this concept.
1: I'm good. That's a good closing statement. You suck me dry of information. I have have nothing left to give. (laughs) Okay.
0: So uh, where can people find your book to read more, John? Okay. So you can find, this is chapter, let's see, chapter 43 out of 49 chapters. So if you like this and you haven't read it yet, you can find The Four Foundations of Golf, How to Build a Game That Lasts a Lifetime, On Amazon, find on Kindle, paperback, hardcover. I am working on the audiobook. I'm going to have an audiobook soon. You can also find it on Apple, Kobo, and Barnes & Noble. Anyone who's read it, I'd really appreciate a review on Amazon that helps other people find it. And if you haven't read it, I hope you do. I think you'll get some good ideas on on how to become a happier golfer and how to improve. And of course, Adam, you, you have written an awesome book, which most people have probably read but we'll do another episode that's more practice manual focused. So Adam, where can everyone find your stuff? The practice manual is on Amazon and you can go to
1: adamyounggolf.com to get video content. I have the strike plan, accuracy plan, or for golf geeks, I've got next level golf that goes into much more detail into everything you could imagine. It's almost coach level Coach certification level content, really, but it's accessible to the average golfer as well. But yeah, anything like that, or just come to our Twitters at Adam Young Golf and yours is at Practical Golf, John.
0: That's correct. And yeah, thanks to just to let everyone know, we are happy to give out the free information on this podcast on our websites. But when you do purchase these things from us, it allows us to keep going and do more of this. So And I know a lot of you have, and we truly support it. We truly appreciate your support. (laughs) Now that I know we've gone on too long. I support you supporting us by buying our products, but that's enough. I'm losing my words. So that means it's time to go. So thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for your feedback. And we will see you next time with a new episode.